Good morning, you're listening to People Powered Radio 2XXFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT, where we delve into local current affairs from a community standpoint. My name is Becca Posterino, Subject ACT Executive Producer and 2XXFM Current Affairs Coordinator. Lovely to have your company today. On today's program, we meet climate change expert and research emeritus professor Will Stefan of the Australian National University. Will Stefan was on the panel of experts supporting the Multi-Party Climate Change Committee and has served as a science advisor to the Australian Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency and was chair of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. In the aftermath of the recent US election, I asked Professor Will Stefan how geopolitical decisions may impact global environmental stability. His insights reiterate the urgency many science experts identify in relation to climate change. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on Local Current Affairs Program Subject ACT. Coming up now, climate change expert Will Stefan. Firstly, as the former climate change expert and science advisor to the Australian Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency, what was the unrealised potential of this department in your view? Well, this department was the government body at the time that was supporting the multi-party committee on climate change. And that is arguably, I think we could make actually a very good case that that was the best climate policy that this country has ever put forward and one of the best in the world. So it was very comprehensive. It had very meaningful emission reduction targets. It had a long-term view of what we needed to do. It certainly had the economic incentives in terms of putting in a carbon pricing mechanism that was fixed for the first three years, few years, and then would go to a cap and trade. It had measures to deal with the equity issues of low-income earners and, and how they would deal with rising electricity prices. And it had research, it had renewable energy support. It had a lot of uh, features to it that made it, I think, a very complete package and a, a very well-done package. So I think the unrealized potential of the department was it was the agency within the Australian government, which was going to actually administer this, this program to a large extent. I should also add that the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency also managed a major research program, the Australian Climate Change Science Program, which was very effective in mobilizing scientists, primarily in CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology, but increasingly in Australian universities, to undertake the world-class uh, research that, uh, that they did. In addition to that, as it became clear that climate change was already having impacts even now, it was not, nothing for the f- just for the future. We needed to think about adaptation. And the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency launched and managed a very large climate adaptation program as well. So they were a large and effective department that addressed many aspects of the climate change issue, from science to adaptation to supporting, uh, I think, a very effective government program. Of course, that got scrapped when the, uh, when the government changed in 2013, which was a great pity because we'd be in much better shape regarding the climate change issue today had we kept that uh, package of policies. The absence of that department, has that set Australia back specifically in terms of the redress of a tangible issue? I think it's one one piece of the puzzle. I think probably more important is the basic uh, government policy on climate change, which has obviously changed quite dramatically since 2013 with the election of the Abbott government. And they dismantled the Clean Energy Futures package, which was the previous government's package. But they also basically gutted the uh, Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency as well. So I think that we lost a lot in that uh, change of government. And it is usually the case, it takes a long time to build up this level of expertise. Mm. This started a decade or two ago with the the so-called Australian Greenhouse Office, which was embedded in the Department of Environment. 
and then under the Rudd government became a department in its own right, mm-hmm. built up its expertise and its strength so it could support all of the things that we, we just mentioned. Now it, it's been pretty much uh, gutted and now is teamed up with the uh, energy department in, in the new uh, configuration under the Turnbull government. Was the carbon pricing mechanism effective in your view? Yeah, I think the evidence was there indeed that it was effective. It operated for two years and we did see emissions from the electricity generation sector, in other words, fossil fuel emissions, come down. It's pretty clear why that happened is once generators had to pay for the emission of CO2, they found ways to become more efficient or to generate energy in other ways. In other words, increased installation of renewables, Perhaps energy efficiency, they worked out if they supported that, uh, they wouldn't have to generate so much electricity and pay so much in the carbon price. So, yeah, the, the evidence was there that the emissions were coming down, and it was timed exactly with the introduction of a pricing mechanism on carbon. I think any economist will tell you that if you have an effective price signal in a market, it should yield some results in terms of, mm-hmm. of what that signal is meant to do. And I think that was the case in terms of carbon pricing. Has the carbon pricing mechanism and the shift in policy from the previous government to the coalition policy, has that impacted the progression of renewable energies per se in Australia? I think it certainly has because there was a a renewable energy target, of course, which was part of the Clean Energy Futures Package, as was support for uh, financing bodies that would support uh, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and so on. So when the coalition came in, there was a lot of doubt about what they were going to do with the renewable energy target, whether they were going to keep it at its at the level it was agreed with the uh, Labor government, whether they were going to water it down, how much money they were going to take away from the renewable energy finance mechanisms, and also how much they were going to support some of the actions against renewable energy, for example, to slow down the, the wind energy industry, and so on. What that did was put in a lot of policy uncertainty in the whole renewable energy sector. And that's one thing that when you have an emerging industry like that, they need some policy certainty for a period of time because they need to make big investments. And they're not going to make investments unless they know that the policies are going to be in place for a reasonable amount of time. So this policy flip-flopping, these policy debates and so on, really damaged quite severely the renewable energy industry in Australia. It was uh, really set to take off from about 2011, 2012 and so on, uh, and it sort of got drastically slowed down when the coalition came into power. So this stagnation in a potential economic industry, is there recognition within the coalition or even acknowledgement that there was a potential for an industry there? Or is that simply something that's not explored? It hasn't been explored too much, at least in the public discourse, as far as I know. And I I can't really say behind the scenes what coalition members are talking about. But it's clear that if you look around the world, there is a lot of economic benefit to be had in terms of supporting renewable energy, bringing renewable energy systems in, a lot of employment and so on. And we've proved that here in the ACT, where at a, a state city level, Uh, We've had a very, very vigorous pro-renewable policy uh, to the point that we'll be 100% renewable by 2020. And Canberra has benefited quite a lot from that in terms of uh, employment, wind energy companies putting their headquarters here, putting in training systems and so on. So you can see that when you get out on the front foot of a new and emerging industry, you can actually reap some of the benefits. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, when you look at this nationwide, you could multiply those benefits. But unfortunately, to do that, you need more coherent, more positive Commonwealth government policies than we have today. Assuming climate change is real, the absence of this dedicated department, which 
no longer is, devoted to addressing this issue. Is it a concern to you, to say the least? Yes, it certainly is, because of all the expertise we lost that we talked about earlier that would stand us in very good stead. The second point I would make is, after the election of the Turnbull government, there was a reorganisation, and climate change has been put together now with energy. And on the surface of it, you could say that would be a good move, because, of course, to, to solve the climate change issue, you've got to transform energy systems. So putting the, you've got to do a lot more than that, of course, mm. but that is a key part of it. So putting those two uh, areas together, in principle, might be a good idea. However, if climate change becomes subservient to mm. the energy side of things, then it could be a very bad thing. Mm. So it depends very much on how that department is managed, what weight is given to climate change. In fact, in my view, because of the long-term potential for climate change to make the planet uh, un- uninhabitable in large areas, mm. I would say that climate change should have the priority mm. and that the energy part of the department should respond to the need to get emissions down. Mm. And if that were the case, this could be very effective. However, we don't see any sign that this is the case uh, under the coalition government. There's an opportunity, I would say, in the science of renewable energy, but in the economic potential. How can you promote that to policymakers, that there is economic viability? Well, you sort of have a push-pull here. You've you've got the pull of, of the advantages of renewable energy. I mean, the cost curves are coming down enormously rapidly, these exponential drops in cost. Whereas five years ago, you would have had to have fairly large subsidies to get renewables in. But solar PV, photovoltaic, is now getting so cheap uh, that it's cheaper than building a new coal-fired power station for the same generating capacity. And why has it become cheap? A lot of that is due to technological development. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's due to rapid rollout. A lot of it is due to mass production in places like China, mm-hmm. where they have low production costs, and then exporting this out onto the world market. But people who, who actually study technological change say that when you get new technologies, you go through a period where they're very expensive, mm-hmm. they're not taken up very much, and then you get this crossover point where the technological development is so rapid that the unit cost comes down so fast that you get this virtuous curve. The more you put it in, the cheaper it gets, which means the more you put it in. And you get some quite dramatic shifts in technologies. So solar energy is, is really in that, in that space now, solar PV, in that it's becoming so cheap that unless you subsidize fossil fuels, it can, out, it can out-compete fossil fuels when you want to put in new generation capacity. So even in Australia, where, where there's a lot of political support from the conservative side for fossil fuels, on an even playing field, fossil fuels wouldn't have a chance against solar and wind uh, in terms of putting in new capacity that we need. One of the questions we, have, we face now in Australia is how fast can we pension off fossil fuel systems, particularly coal-fired power stations, because the situation is very urgent. We can't let them run out their, their economic lifetime or we'll, we'll emit too much CO2. So there is economic viability for renewable energy. Absolutely. And in fact, that's, I think, proven in the Canberra case, where I think the extra cost of going 100% renewable fast was only about the cost of a cappuccino a week per family. And also the ACT government has a energy efficiency program, which will help you, I think, at no, little or no cost, improve the efficiency of your, your home, which means that uh, you can more than cover the extra cost by simply using electricity and getting the same service. So the ACT is proving that the economics are really on the side of renewables now. How can science address climate change? Well, I think we're, we're addressing it because we are the ones that diagnose the, the problem. If you want to use an analogy, you can say, well, in, in a health system, there are many aspects of a health system, but a really critically important one of the physicians that diagnose how healthy or not you are and what needs to be done. And we're sort of planetary physicians, climate <laughs> scientists, in that we look at the health of the planet in the same way that physicians look at human health. 
And just as your body is a system, the earth as a whole is a system. And we can diagnose now pretty well how that system is operating, where the problems are, and so on. And then we can diagnose what needs to be done. Now, what policies need to be put in place to solve the problem, of course, is something that requires economists, technological people, political scientists, and so on. But the diagnosis of the problem and the recommendations for what needs to be done uh, lie squarely in the, in the area of science. So I think that is the main role that we have to play in this whole climate question. Why is scientific research and therefore funding for scientific research so important for our global future? Well, it's absolutely critical to understand what the implications of climate change really are, both in the short term and the long term. For example, to understand the things that really matter for humans, and that's the connection between long-term climate and short-term weather. That is the thing we actually experience, be they storms, be they floods, rainfall and floods, be they droughts, be they heat waves or coastal flooding or, or what have you. Those things are the things that can take people's lives, injure people, damage infrastructure, lose property and so on. So they really matter for people. And they are connected to the fact that we're changing the climate system very fundamentally in the longer term. Now, to understand the nature of those risks, where they are occurring, how fast they're occurring, and how we might ameliorate them takes ongoing science. And that's really critical for Australia. We're sort of in the front line in terms of being vulnerable to many different types of climate impacts. So we need to have understanding of how our climate system is changing and how that relates to shorter-term weather phenomena, which really drive impacts. And that's a very active, ongoing area of research around the world. And unfortunately, we've gutted much of that capacity in CSIRO Mm -hmm. uh, over the past year or so. So uh, it it matters there. It also matters for understanding the climate system in a very fundamental way. Australia, I think until recently, had the largest climate research capacity in the entire southern hemisphere. And our colleagues in the north, and there's huge science capacity in the north, in Europe, in US and Canada, and increasingly in China, and Japan. But they look to us and colleagues in New Zealand and South Africa and and some growing research communities in South America to look at half of the planet and a very important half of the planet indeed. So so Australian science is not just important for Australian Mm. issues. It's actually very important for the global scientific community. You've been listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on local current affairs program Subject ACT. That was my conversation with climate change expert, Emeritus Professor of the Australian National University, Will Stefan, discussing some of the research-based theory guiding climate science. Stay with us now for more of our discussion on 2XXFM 98.3 Subject ACT. My name is Becca Posterino. Can scientists convince policymakers that there is economic rationale and logic in reacting and responding to climate change? Indeed there is, and there are examples around Australia where that's occurring. One of the best examples is Brisbane Airport, which is a very busy airport, and it's, uh, the traffic is growing rapidly, so they have to put a new runway in to cope with that. Now, of course, they lie out near the, the seacoast in, um, in, in Brisbane, uh, very low-lying areas. So they are potentially subject to coastal flooding as sea level rises and east coast lows become more intense and driving uh, stronger storm surges. So when they were designing this new runway, which is a very, very costly piece of infrastructure, as you might guess, they did the right thing by consulting scientific experts on sea level rise about what the risks actually were, how to manage them, what they should do in terms of the height of that runway above sea level. Ultimately, of course, it's it's an economic decision. How much risk do you want to insure yourself against? Mm. But it's informed by the science. And I think the way they did it was exemplary in that they just didn't read a couple of scientific pa- papers. They had an ongoing relationship with some of the best sea level rise experts in the world, not just in Australia. And that informed them very much in terms of how they're going to 
design and build that runway. Of course, it costs them a lot more initially, but that's the critical point. In the long term, it greatly reduces the risk that they're going to lose that infrastructure before its economic lifetime is over. So that's the sort of thing where already climate change science is really, really important. And when you think about Australia, when you think about our capital cities, our infrastructure, so much of it is along the coastline. We're very much a coastal country. And the science is now really strong on sea level rise, on the increased risk of coastal flooding as sea level rises half a metre, potentially even a metre above pre-industrial levels by the end of this century. So that's one area that's important. Another area is property along the coast. Mm. Already insurance companies are onto that. Uh, Some uh, coastal areas are now... Uh, very difficult to insure or sometimes even impossible to insure. Same thing is true for flood risk areas, high bushfire risk areas, and so on. So parts of our economy that deal with climate-related risks are already on top of this, and they are indeed using a lot of the scientific information that we have to manage their businesses to make sure they decrease their financial risk from climate change. When you start looking at the high-end projections globally of what just sea level rise and coastal infrastructure might mean, and you look at the high-end projection, in other words, close to a meter by the end of this century, you find that some of the worst-case scenarios are basically economic collapse scenarios. Mm -hmm. They're talking about reductions of several percent of GDP per year from sea level Mm -hmm. rise. Once the loss of GDP is higher than the Mm. increase, you're in a collapse scenario. You spiral downwards. So, And these aren't far-fetched scenarios. So one of the things we say is that the high-end risk, the second half of this century, is really quite severe, and including economic collapse Mm. uh, risks. If private enterprise and private businesses are acknowledging and utilising climate science to protect themselves from a business point of view, why is the coalition government in particular in Australia so steadfast in its policy to yeah. de- deny climate cha- the, the significance yeah. of, of climate change? Yeah, I, look, I can only guess, uh, being a natural scientist, not being a political scientist, sociologist, I could make some guesses. But it's pretty clear, I think, from the evidence in the media and so on, that they do have a fairly conservative portion of their support base that is anti-climate change for whatever reason. And they obviously are somewhat hidebound by that. Also, the fossil fuel industries are exceptionally strong in Australia. They're very big. Uh, coal exports are big. Gas is becoming big. Um, so, and those wield a lot of political power. They understand quite clearly that to be serious about climate change, you've got to phase out those industries. There's no other way around it. Well before we use up the known reserves of gas and coal. So it's in their political interest to stall any effective action on climate change. The economic transformation that we need, and indeed it's a big economic uh, transformation, will generate winners and losers. And it's going to be the role of governments to manage this transition in a way that it eases out the losers and supports the winners. Uh, We've had big transformations in the past, economic transformations in the past as humans, and this is going to be another big one. But I think what we're seeing now is that the incumbents, those who are going to lose, see themselves lose, are weighing in with their political cloud as much as they can to delay delay the inevitable. Now, the tricky thing with climate change is if you delay the inevitable too much, you actually let the climate system get out of control. And that's where climate science comes back into the the, the question. You start talking about these things like tipping elements or tipping points in the climate system, that if we cross, no matter how much we reduce emissions, you can't retrieve the climate system. It's going to go to a warmer state no matter what we do or what we want to happen. So we're playing a very dangerous game at the moment, and time is running out to get this transformation going. Are we close to that tipping point? Is it something that you can measure in time? 
how urgent is this crisis in your view with your expertise? It's pretty urgent because the way we judge where these tipping points might lie is how much warming do you need before you might start tipping them? One of them we've already tipped, I think, and that's the Arctic sea ice. That's going to be gone in summertime. What that does is uncovers much darker ocean water compared to the ice, and that leads to more regional warming. And, of course, Greenland ice sheet is in that region. And I think we're actually getting close to a tipping point there where the melting rate is now getting large enough. And as the surface melts, it lowers in altitude, which puts it into a warmer climatic zone. You know, as you go up a mountain, it gets colder. Mm. And we know that very well. Once it gets low enough, then the warming becomes uh, self-reinforcing. Melting becomes self-reinforcing. Mm. Uh, and the whole thing's going to be lost. That's worth eventually about seven meters of sea level rise. My view is, and I think a lot of experts would agree, we could reach that tipping point before the middle of this century the way we're going. Another way I like to look at it is if we meet the Paris two-degree target, how much warmer will it actually get because of tipping points we haven't factored in? We could be up closer to three degrees from melting, some melting in the permafrost, from loss of the Amazon forest, for increased fires in the big northern forests of Siberia and Canada. In each of these cases, we see evidence that these processes are already beginning. We're seeing bubbling of methane from melting permafrost. We're seeing increased fires in Canada and Siberia. We've had two big droughts and fires in the last decade in the Amazon. So what this is telling me is that two degrees is really a, a, a drop-dead target. If you, get, if you go beyond that, the odds go up, not just linearly, but very fast, that you're going to tip more of these tipping elements, and the system will simply get out of control. By that end, it'll keep warming towards three or four degrees, even if we cut emissions to virtually zero. It's really critical that the Paris target be met. 1.5 is, uh, I think, quite a bit safer than two. But we're virtually at 1.5. We're virtually committed to that now. Mm. And that would put you almost, well, on an emergency wartime footing in terms of getting emissions down. To meet the two-degree one, which I think is the absolute maximum you would want to tolerate, that requires really rapid emission uh, reductions. And basically, we need to be decarbonized in, in the developed world around 2040, 2050. You need to look at the big I'd say four or five big economic sectors that use electricity and emit. The obvious one's electricity, but we know how to do that. We can, we can generate electricity with renewables, and we can put them in pretty fast. The constraints there are now political and power block economic. They're not technological. Transport, another big one. The key to that is electrifying ground transport that you can then run off renewables. In other words, in urban areas, increasing electrified rail which gives you a lot of benefits anyway, electric buses and, of course, electric vehicles. Agriculture is a big emitter. That's a trickier one because we need to grow food. And not all of the emissions there are CO2. There are big emissions from methane, which comes from rice production and comes from cattle. And there are big emissions of nitrous oxide, N2O, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. That comes mainly from fertilizers. Changing diets is very important. Going to eating far less meat is important because that gets the methane emissions down quite dramatically. All sorts of things can happen throughout the entire food system. So this isn't just agriculture. This is the food system, how we process it, transport it, use it, waste it, dietary preferences and so mm. on. This is an area where there isn't a silver bullet or even a few silver bullets. Mm. This is silver buckshot. We've got to do a lot of different things mm. right throughout the food system to get on top of it. Mm. I think a lot of the constraints now are political and cultural. Mm. I think the technology, again, is, is developing very rapidly. You said four and I interrupted you. Electricity, transport, transport, agriculture. And built infrastructure. What do you mean by that? Buildings, basically. Buildings, the yeah. way that we build. Yes, the way that we build. There's a good example on the ANU campus where the new Fenner building was built to six green star. It was an interesting case because we had a very limited budget. 
And the construction company told us, well, they couldn't possibly do it on time and under budget if we demanded all these environmental features. But in fact, when we sat down and worked with them, they did it. They did it. So they produced a six green star building. I think it was the first one in Canberra on time and under budget. So the optimistic side of this is if we unleash our ingenuity in the right directions, this could lead to a lot of co-benefits. That building, for example, is much more pleasant to work in than a classical ANU building. So I think one of the challenges for Canberra as we go through our urban renewable and redevelopment phase is to design that new infrastructure, not just transport infrastructure, which of course is very important, but also the built infrastructure, the new apartment blocks, the new office buildings, the new single dwellings, single family dwellings that are going to go in with the mind to creating a lot of high quality green space around them. Mm. Because in the long term, that gives you more benefits than the cost of just slamming buildings together very Mm. tightly. There seems to be an apathy, perhaps an indifference towards climate change and (coughs) the interrelated (coughs) issues that we've discussed. As a scientist, with your scope, how does this impact your motivation as a scientist? As a scientist, it's much more easy. I think it's much easier to keep motivated than it is for the general public. Because we're interested, of course, in, in knowledge generation, ultimately. And understanding how the climate system works is one of the most fascinating areas you could ever be in. And it's ra- it's changing so rapidly, there's so much good science going on around the world. But in the policy side, in the general public side, I can see that there is a, there can really be a, a sort of an exhaust, climate exhaustion is there's so much information coming in, so much happening. As a planetary scientist, it's exceptionally fast. It's unbelievably fast. Mm. But from a human time frame, that doesn't appear to be the case. What does climate change mean in the long term? I think taking a long term view is important because it should change the way people actually look at this. By long term, if you go back to the Roman Empire, if you go back earlier when humans developed agriculture and so on, which is about 10,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. that's a very short time period in the Earth, history Mm -hmm. of the Earth, long time period in terms of humans. Uh, But humans have been around for 200,000 years, Mm -hmm. and it's only the last 10,000 years we've developed agriculture, villages, cities, more complex societies of the type we enjoy today. That's been an unusually stable state of the earth system over the last 10,000 years. It's called the Holocene. The geologists actually have given it its own epoch. And climate's varied a bit during that. Temperatures have been plus or minus half a degree or maybe even one degree. But over 10,000 years, it's been very, very steady. Right now, we are changing the temperature at a rate that is 170 times faster Mm -hmm. than the background rate of of the Holocene. We're changing CO2, adding it to the atmosphere, 100 times faster than the rate that CO2 went up naturally during the transition from the last ice age to this 10,000-year warm mm-hmm. period. So we are changing the earth at unprecedented rates. This is why coral reefs are bleaching. This is why Tasmanian forests are burning. This is why flying foxes dropping dead out of the sky from heat. Mm-hmm. Natural systems cannot in any way cope with this. We've got to be really clear about that, that if we keep doing this, we're going to totally make over the biosphere of planet Earth. The other thing I point out to people is that the difference between an ice age and a warm period. Ice age, remember, lots of land ice in the northern hemisphere. Half of North America was covered. Europe was covered down to Germany, Netherlands, and so on. That was only about four degrees colder in global average temperature than the warm period we developed in. Under a worst-case scenario, we could be four degrees warmer by the end of this century. It takes about seven or 8,000 years to come out of an ice age and go to a warm period, 4-degree temperature shift. We could do that in a century and a half. 
There is no way that I think even human societies will be able to keep up with that. So I think taking this long-term view of climate change puts it in an entirely different light. It makes a lot of the economic analyses irrelevant because they're only looking at perturbations of the present economic system. We're talking about step changes, Mm. and they can't cope with that. But this is, I keep telling people, this is the worst case scenario, but that's the track we're on now. Taking this long-term perspective is really important to, to bring it out of the decadal, year-by-year, economics-oriented, biased analysis of what mm. climate change really is. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3, people-powered community radio. The program is Subject ACT, where we explore local current affairs from a curious gaze. That concluded my discussion with Emeritus Professor of the Australian National University, Will Stefan, and how he and his climate science peers view global environmental security. Tomorrow, Doug Dobing presents Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT, and if you'd like to subscribe to 2XXFM, please visit www.2XXFM.org.au to become a valued member of our community radio station. Join us each weekday on 2XXFM 98.3 from 8.30 till 9am for more local current affairs on Subject ACT or stream us live on www.2XXFM.org.au slash listen. My name is Becca Postorino. Enjoy your day.